is Our American Stories. And joining us now for two segments, Philip K. Howard, Chairman of Common Good, author of The Rule of Nobody. And we're talking to Philip today because of a column he wrote in the Wall Street Journal. And the title it was, The President's Right to Say You're Fired. Today's civil service system violates the Constitution, and President Trump has the power to fix it. And Philip, thank you so much for joining us. Nice to be with you. And let's take this, if we can, above and beyond Trump, because I think this column addresses almost all the presidents since perhaps the 1950s, Philip. Talk about this thing called the civil service uh, branch of government. Who are civil servants and why did you write this piece? Um, Well, civil servants are the people who make government work. I mean, they're they're, uh, people who tend to be um, have careers in government. Um, and so there were about 2 million non-defense civilian employees in the federal government, for example, not counting outside contractors and such. And these people are civil servants. And, um, and they make government work. They work in all kinds of, you know, they work in Air traffic controllers and uh, homeland defense, uh, uh, homeland security, you know, TSA officers at the airports and environmental officials. They're, you know, they're the people who do the daily work of regulating and administering the many programs that the federal government has. I'm going to read a line and maybe you could explain it to our audience. You write in the column, although civil service was once thought the cure for government corruption, it has become a cancer killing good government. Talk about these two items that you talk about almost simultaneously here. Yeah, it's um, the idea of civil service was to create a professionalized service of people who were competent as opposed to the spoil system, which is what existed through much of the 19th century, where uh, people would get government jobs just because they supported somebody in an election, and often they didn't even have to show up to work. Right. So, so, so government didn't work very well because it was run by these political hacks who didn't do a very good job. So, so it was good to fix that. So we're not advocating a return to the spoil system. But, but civil service was was always supposed to be the quote merit system. People would get their jobs and keep their jobs based on merit. And what happened, really beginning in the 1960s, uh, is that is that civil service was no longer based on merit. It became a legal entitlement. And so, it, once again, it didn't matter whether you did your job or not. And so there are people who wouldn't show up for work or would never cooperate, and they just keep their jobs. And there were key moments in this change, Philip. And one had to happen somewhere around the 1950s, as you point out, in which it became harder to fire federal government workers or people who are civil servants. Why did that happen? Why, how did that initially happen? Because that was, I think, the, the nose under the tent, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was really three things. Uh, uh, John F. Kennedy, as a, as a sort of a political payback to public employee support, um, gave them the right to collectively bargain. And so they would have these contracts, you know, they're that made it much harder to fire people. Um, and then, uh, you know, the 1960s was a tumultuous decade, and there was something called the Due Process Revolution. 
And this, everybody sort of started looking at everything as a matter of individual rights. So um, whenever there was a dispute in the workplace, uh, the court said, well, you know, a job is really important to somebody, therefore they should never lose it unless you can prove at a trial that they should lose it or whatever. And uh, nobody was thinking about, well, how does the whole world office work? Right. You know, they were just putting a magnifying glass on the one employee. And it became like, you know, it had been like convicting somebody of a crime to to make them lose their jobs. And then those two things, the John F. Kennedy executive order and the, quote, due process, right, were then enshrined by Congress in a law, the Civil Service Reform Act of 1978. And so at this point, it's basically impossible to fire somebody. Um, uh, last year, there was a report by the Government Account Accountability Office that um, 99%, over 99% of all federal employees got a fully successful employee rating. And the reason for that is not because they're all so great, is because if you say anything negative in the personnel file, they have the right to make to go to trial and make you prove it if you're a manager. So, you know, nobody wants to bother to do that. So, you know, it's it's you know, literally more people die on the job than are ever demoted or fired. Yeah, I had a friend once tell me the only way people leave is they either die or they retire. Um, that's it. And they don't get fired. And by the way, we know about this also, Philip, in, in the New York City public school system. My dad was a superintendent of schools in the northern New Jersey school district. And he, by the time he became superintendent, he entered the school district in the 1950s, rose to superintendent in the 90s. And he said, I watched uh, a superintendent be able to fire people and then not be able to fire people. And he said it was a cosmic shift in the ability of superintendents, let alone principals, to really move the needle in their workforce. Talk about how what's happened on the federal workforce, if you do, just in about a minute right here, Philip, uh, has trickled into the state workforces and the local workforces. Uh, oh, oh, sure. So, so this is true of government in general. And the evil here is not that there are so many terrible people in government. It's that when it doesn't matter what you do on the job, it affects the culture of the workplace. Everybody knows it doesn't matter. So you end up Actually, it's like pulling the plug on the energy in the workplace. So what's horrible about being in a bad school or a bad you know, government office is, is this kind of almost like a depressant in the air. Because everybody knows it doesn't matter what you do. I think that's a perfect point. When we come back, more with Philip K. Howard, chairman of Common Good and author of The Rule of Nobody. We're talking to him about his Wall Street Journal editorial, or column that is, The President's Right to Say you're fired. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we continue the story that we're telling you right now about civil service workers in this country and the culture that's being created from this utter lack of accountability as it relates to job performance. And again, Philip K. Howard, chairman of The Common Good, author of Common Good, and author of The Rule of Nobody. Let's get back to that culture, because we all know we've worked in places like this in the private workforce, Philip, where there aren't incentives aligned properly, where certain people get hired and others don't, and there's sort of an an immorality in the workforce. That is, there's no accountability in the workforce. And if it can happen in the private sector, my goodness, how bad can it actually get in the public service sector? And, And here's, I think, the key point, Philip. Who wants to go work? Are we attracting our best and brightest in the civil service sector if there are no incentives and, and no accountability? No, it's, it, 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 it's a lose-lose situation. So, so good people don't want to uh, go into government because they don't want to be in this culture. Uh, and there's another unintended effect of this, which is that um, – which is that when you can't hold people accountable, you give them very detailed rule books on how to do everything. So you have these thousand-page rule books in government, literally. And well, who wants to go work in a place where you're just a mindless cog in this thousand-page machine? Yep. You know what? You know what's fun about life is to is to wake up in the morning and to. Go to your job knowing that you can make a difference with your own ideas and your own way of doing things. If you're a, a, a government employee and and you can't exercise your judgment because you're you're shackled with a thousand you know with a thousand rules and somebody asks to do something sensible and you say no I'm sorry the rule makes me do it this way you know yeah. the rule the rule made me do it then then uh who wants to do it and the same thing with teachers who wants to spend hours filling out forms that nobody reads yeah. because the rules tell you to do it so so it's 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 a terrible culture and it creates a terrible legal structure and the and then the, just to keep going the rippling effects it makes it impossible to actually do regulatory reform and to make government sensible, you know, act sensibly, because ultimately, at the point of implementation, humans always have to make a judgment. Nothing good ever happened in the world because somebody followed a rule. Yep. You know, rules are only there to prevent bad things from happening. So if you really want the infrastructure to be rebuilt, for example, or something else, somebody has to decide, well, how much environmental review is there? How much, you know, how do we balance the considerations of this and that to give a permit on time? Well, if nobody has the, the authority to do that because they don't, then none of those things happen. That's right. That's right. And by the way, I'm going to quote one other thing here to to reiterate that point and maybe flush it out a bit more. You write, we've come full circle. Instead of guarding against public jobs as political property, civil service has become a property right of the employees themselves. Federal workers answer to no one. And again, this, this creates really bad cultures when no one's answerable to anybody else. Further elucidate that point you were making. Yeah, yeah so... So you end up having civil servants being the enemy of democracy when they should be the tool of democracy. And so the links in the chain are broken. We elect somebody as president. We want to hold them accountable for doing something. But in fact, the president pushes a button and nothing happens. 
And so, you know, what I, and it leads to all these rippling effects of, you know, having laws and regulations be too detailed and stupid. So you end up having central planning, which, of course, then means you get a worse quality of person in government because who wants to work in that? And then that, then it's a vicious cycle leads to even more stupid rules, you know, as, as people try to cope with the, the, the fact that government doesn't work very well. So the only way to fix this is to abandon it and to actually create a structure not in which anybody can be fired. You can always have safeguards against political firing and stuff. They had that before the 1950s. But you've got to create a system that's goals-oriented, where government and regulation and rules are much simpler, where they focus on um, giving the permits and because you've given a measure of authority to officials, you have to be able to fire them. Indeed. And right now, the president of the United States, any president of the United States, how many people can he actually fire of the total aggregate wor- workforce? Oh, 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 none. He, he gets to a point, a couple of thousand people, maybe 2% of the workforce at, at most, and he can, those serve it as well. But, but they, in turn, can't manage the agencies they're, they're, they're running. So... So what I argue in this piece is that, is that this system is actually unconstitutional. It won't actually get voluntarily changed by Congress because the, because the public unions are too politically powerful, like the teachers' union. But, uh, but Article 2 of the Constitution says the president has the authority over the executive branch, and there's 170 years of, of uh, Supreme Court rulings that basically talk about, quote, the illimitable power of the president over employees. Well, it's one thing to create a neutral civil service system, which I'm all for. It's another thing to create a system that's completely insulated from accountability, which I think is clearly unconstitutional. Indeed. In fact, you quote here, executive power is toothless without practical authority over personnel. If any power whatsoever is in its nature executive, James Madison once observed, it is the power of appointing, overseeing, and controlling those who execute the laws. So there it is, one of our great founders, one of the primary voices, particularly on the, on the Bill of Rights, uh, James Madison. And there we have his quote. There's an acronym, actually, that you talk about, Philip, in the piece for how uh, the, the, the civil servants deal with incoming administrations. Uh, and there's an acronym pronounced, we be wig, we'll right. be here when you're gone. We'll yeah, be here right. when you're gone. Yeah, it's famous, famous. I mean, you know, public employees famously, if they don't like the policies of uh, of the president, they just drag their feet. It's a passive-aggressive stuff, and nothing ever happens. Well, the only way to cure that is to say, you know, it's for whoever it is, the deputy assistant secretary, to say, we're going to do the following. It's going to get done in 60 days. If it's not done in 60 days... You know, and there's no good reason why it wasn't done in 60 days, and we're going to get new people. Yeah, well, it'll be a fascinating Supreme Court case because, let's face it, uh, executive orders were designed for just this kind of thing. And I think now with the new Supreme Court uh, nomination in place, I think this could be a remarkable test case for the President of the United States to say, this is within my purview, it's within the constitutional framework for me to actually exercise my authority and fire a lot more people. Uh, Do you you think this will happen? Yes, and, and, and the irony here is what you need to do is not fire a lot of people, but just be able to fire people. Right. Because then 
people act differently. Yep. And they may even not join. Different kinds of people may be recruited as well, Philip. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So what I'm recommending to the Trump administration is they certainly avoid, do not fire anybody for political reasons. Right. That's, two, that's two charts. Find people who are not doing the job, somebody. Tell them that they're no longer going to be doing that and they should go find work elsewhere. Let them bring the lawsuit, take it to the Supreme Court, and then win. And what's remarkable, Philip, is Common Good is comprised of really remarkable people on the left and the right, understanding that this civil service problem is indeed a bipartisan problem. Last but not least, and this is just a side question, when was it uh, turned into a good idea that the civil service unions could, could collectively bargain? The citizens are not at that table collectively bargaining, are they? Yeah, no. Who are they bargaining against? They're bargaining against the voters. I mean, it's really Franklin Roosevelt thought that public unions were an oxymoron. So wait a minute. There, you know, the people who work for government are supposed to be working for the people. The government doesn't work for the employees. And what's happened is they're bargaining for themselves against the public interest. So you can't hold people accountable. I mean, it's really – democracy means nothing if, they're not, if the links in the chain are not all – you know, connected. I mean, what does it matter who you elect if the agency just works the same way it did before you elected somebody new? Yep. And that's why that acronym is so, so important. And it's so aloof to the democratic process. It's basically saying, screw you. Yeah, that's right. So we need a completely new framework. But but the reality is, in, in common good, we're doing this. And people can go to simplifygov.org if they want to see our platform. But you know, we're doing this. Basically, it's one of those times in history where it's time not to get rid of government. We're not Tea Party types. Where it's time to actually just recodify it, simplify it, bring everything up to date. Um, you know, get rid of all the unnecessary, um, you know, jungle and tangle so that people can actually understand what's required of them and let people take responsibility, and then we can hold them accountable. It's a lot easier than trying to comply with millions of words of law. Indeed, and I'll end this conversation with the end of your column. America needs to remake Washington for the 21st century. The only path forward is to return to constitutional first principles and, by executive order, create a civil service system that actually serves the American people. Philip K. Howard. Chairman of Common Good, author of The Rule of Nobody uh, in the Wall Street Journal. Thanks so much for joining us. Nice to be with you. You bet. is Our American Stories, and for the next half hour, we're going to do something really important. We're going to be talking about the top 10 sodas in the world with a special report from our producer, Jesse. But first, to set the stage and to illustrate our love for soda pop on this show, we're going to go back and listen to an off-the-air rant that took place here in the studio. I was telling the team about a restaurateur I knew back in the day who was a perfectionist when it came to the ice he would serve in his drinks to customers. The conversation then spilled over into a passionate discussion of my personal love for Coca-Cola. Let's take a listen. Coke had to be cold before it was poured under the ice. It's warm Coke mm. on ice tastes different. And then the ice changes the kind of the Coke. And then the kind of Coke, he's one of the first people to get Mexican Coke. 
<laughs> he was a freak about it. Because Mexican Coke is, as everybody knows, superior to American yeah. Coke. Yeah. Really? Oh, no, no comparison. They, they have, what, like 400 different recipes, and they're all catering to different regions of the, different of regions. the world. And there's one in particular, the part where a, ba- a Baja's Mexican Coke is like the original Coke. Yeah. It was, it's just more expensive because it's the real, real sugar. It's not the... The stuff, the refined, oh, it's sugar, sugar, sugar. Sugar cane. Yeah, yeah sugar cane. From the Better cane. than McDonald's? No, McDonald's is the best ever. Okay. McDonald's <laughs> has a special recipe from Coke. Yeah. And, and some of them said, for, screw it, just give us the mass stuff at a vet. So you'll go to some McDonald's, especially ones where the Coke's given by the people behind. And then they have a special mix, and they have a, a special a, a extra amount of syrup that they put in. They put in more syrup. Secret Coke. Oh, no. And I literally, there are <laughs> hundreds of thousands of people who literally know the McDonald's that serve the special McDonald's soda. And it's not every McDonald's because it costs more. It's actually quite a bit more. It's like three or four cents a drink, which sounds yeah. like nothing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in the no. overall mix of all that soda, they'll go screw it. The damn customers don't know. There was one McDonald's in, in Baltimore where I stopped going when they changed it. Mm. <laughs> and I used to, like, drive 20 minutes. And I don't think they ever figured it out. Yeah, no, it, you know. I know, it's a little sad, isn't it? How did you find out that you just tasted the change? Oh, yeah, I tasted it. And I, I also knew. I mean, I would always be look. I look, yeah. I didn't have, oh, I could taste it. I don't need to ask. <laughs> and with you, it's self-serve. It's not that. Because once you go to self-serve, then they just go to the traditional mixes. So it had to come from the back. Okay. And there's a couple of other restaurants that did that deal with McDonald's. Chick-fil-A did it for the longest time. And then I don't know what happened. I don't really? know if they paid. Yeah, because there just became too many people who hadn't been. Here, here's what it came from. The people who ever had an original Coke from the soda fountain, from the yeah. ice cream parlor, yeah. knew that you could say to the man with the hat, and especially if you had the seltzer really cold, you'd say, give me an extra shot of the syrup. And he would just go, this, this. And I mean, you'd be flying for the whole day. And it just tasted freaking great. But, you know, each jolt of the syrup. You know, he's, you know, if it was 12 cents for the Coke, he'd say, you know, 15 right. or whatever. It's like extra hot fudge on your hot fudge at the basket. It's like an extra shot and you It's like an extra shot of whatever. Absolutely. <laughs> and there you have it. We are passionate about all things here at Our American Stories. And with that, we now go to our executive producer, Jesse Edwards, with his report on the top 10 sodas in the world. There's finally an official and seemingly unbiased ranking of sodas, or soda pop, or pop, depending on what part of the country you're in. And the results might surprise you. The top dog should be obvious, but its longtime rival is strangely much lower on the list than expected. Bear in mind, this is as legitimate as possible. We didn't poll a handful of people waiting for the subway. It's a poll that just closed on Ranker.com, and over 185,000 people voted. It's pretty hard to dispute these statistics. Here's a look at the top ten, starting with the tenth position and working our way to the coveted spot of number one. At number ten is Pepsi-Cola. Cooking Pepsi on the same thing! Wake up, people! We always assumed that Pepsi was almost as popular as Coke, but according to this poll, it's not even in the same ballpark. Pepsi was first named Brad's Drink in New Bern, North Carolina in 1893 by Caleb Bradham, who made it at his drugstore where the drink was sold. It was renamed Pepsi-Cola in 1898 after the root of the word dyspepsia and the cola nuts used in the recipe. The original recipe also included sugar and vanilla. 
Bradham sought to create a fountain drink that was appealing and would aid in digestion and boost energy. In 1903, Bradham moved the bottling of Pepsi-Cola from his drugstore to a rented warehouse. That year, he sold 7,968 gallons of syrup. The next year, Pepsi was sold in six-ounce bottles, and sales increased to 19,848 gallons. In 1931, at the depth of the Great Depression, the Pepsi-Cola company entered bankruptcy in large part due to financial losses incurred by speculating on the wildly fluctuating sugar prices as a result of World War I. On three separate occasions between 1922 and 1933, the Coca-Cola Company was offered the opportunity to purchase the Pepsi-Cola Company, and it declined on each occasion. Here's an old Pepsi commercial from the time when the drink only cost one nickel. Pepsi-Cola hits the spot. Thirsty people everywhere prefer ice cold Pepsi Cola. And because it's light, it refreshes without filling. Charlie, be sociable. I am, Kay. Pepsi is a favorite of thirsty people from Maine to Hawaii, from Alaska to Florida. Charlie. It's perfect for parties or picnics. So serve Pepsi to your guests. That's helpful. But this is the sociable part. Keep plenty of Pepsi ice cold and ready. Remember, it goes fast because everybody likes Pepsi. Singing still sounds more inviting. At number nine of the world's most popular soda pop drinks, Canada Dry Ginger Ale. It's a brand of soft drinks owned since 2008 by the Texas-based Dr. Pepper Snapple Group. For over a century, Canada Dry has been known for its ginger ale, though the company also manufactures a number of other soft drinks and mixers. Although Canada Dry originated in Canada, it's now produced in many countries, including Mexico, Colombia, the Middle East, Europe, and Japan. The dry in the brand's name refers to it not being very sweet, as in a dry wine. Here's an early Canada Dry ginger ale commercial from the 1960s. Somebody saw the shot, and she's got a cold drink for you. Canada Dry ginger ale. One gulp is for thirst, the other gulps are for kicks. Come in on a wave and end up at a party. It's going to be a good evening. Canada Dry Ginger Ale. One gulp is for thirst, the other gulps are for kicks. In at number eight of the most popular sodas in the world is Cherry Coke. Long before its official introduction in 1985, many diners and drugstore soda fountains dispensed an unofficial version of Cherry Coke by adding cherry-flavored syrup to the Coca-Cola mix. Coca-Cola tested Cherry Coke on an audience in 1982 at the World's Fair. It then entered mainstream production during the summer of 1985. Cherry Coke, which by 2007 had been renamed Coca-Cola Cherry in the U.S. and some other countries, was the third variation of Coca-Cola at the time, the others being Coca-Cola Classic and Diet Coke and the first Flavored Coke. Listen to this terribly 80s Cherry Coke commercial. In at number seven is Orange Crush. In 1911, Clayton J. Howell, president and founder of the Orange Crush Company, partnered with Neil C. Ward and incorporated the company. Ward made the recipe for Orange Crush. 
Howell was not new to the soft drink business, having earlier introduced Howell's orange juice julep. Soft drinks of the time often carried the surname of the inventor along with the product name. Howell sold the rights to his name in conjunction with his first brand. Therefore, Ward was given the honors. Crush was first premiered as Ward's Orange Crush. And originally, Orange Crush included orange pulp in the bottles, giving it a fresh, squeezed illusion, even though the pulp was added rather than remaining from squeezed oranges. Pulp has not been in the bottles for decades. The band R.E.M. even titled one of their popular songs after the fizzy drink, though I'm not entirely sure of the point these lyrics are trying to make. This is Our American Stories and more on the top 10 sodas in the world and more with Jesse's Report. American stories, and when we left off, our producer Jesse was ripping through the top 10 sodas in the world, according to a poll of over 180,000 people. We now return to this special report. In at number six of the most popular sodas on the planet is Seven Up. When someone brings up soda rivalries, many people's minds immediately head towards Coke and Pepsi. But the rivalry between Sprite and 7-Up is pretty good, too. 7-Up was created by Charles Leeper Grigg, who launched his St. Louis-based company, the Howdy Corporation, in 1920. Grigg came up with the formula for a lemon-lime soft drink in 1929. The product, originally named Bib Label Lithiated Lemon-Lime Soda, oof, that's a tongue twister, was launched two weeks before the Wall Street crash of 1929. It contained lithium citrate, a mood-stabilizing drug, until 1948. It was one of a number of medicine products popular in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Its name was later shortened to 7-Up Lithiated Lemon Soda before being further shortened to just 7-Up by 1936. Westinghouse bought up 7-Up in 1969 and sold it in 1978 to Philip Morris, who then, in 1986, sold it to a group led by the investment firm Hicks & Haas. 7-Up merged with Dr. Pepper in 1988. Cadbury Schweppes bought the combined company in 1995. The Dr. Pepper Snapple Group was spun off from Cadbury Schweppes in 2008. Originally branded as the Uncola, 7-Up made some pretty funny commercials back in the 1980s. Her first Uncola, the moment in every girl's life when she leaves her childhood of one cola after another cola behind and begins a lifetime of the fresh, clean taste of 7-Up, a lifetime of security in the knowledge that the Uncola is never too sweet that the Uncola has everything a cola's got and more besides. The Uncola is forever. In at number five of the world's most popular soda pop drinks 
is A&W Root Beer. Root Beer, along with sarsaparilla, birch beer, and cream soda, is one of the most old-timey sodas available. Sipping it brings drinkers back to simpler times. Plus, it's just begging to be used to make a root beer float. On June 20th, 1919, Roy W. Allen opened a roadside root beer stand in Lodi, California, using a formula he purchased from a pharmacist. He soon opened stands in Stockton, California, and five stands in nearby Sacramento, home of the country's first drive-in featuring Trey Boys for curbside service. In 1920, Allen became partners with Frank Wright, and the two combined their initials, calling their product A&W Root Beer. Here's a funny A&W Root Beer commercial from a few years back where a guy is at a job interview getting the name of his potential new boss completely wrong. Mr. Dumbass... I can bring a lot to dumbass and dumbass. I'm a go-getter. Dumbass material all the way. So, am I your man, Mr. Dumbass? The name is Dumas. That's pretty thick-headed. But nothing compared to the rich, thick, frosty mug taste of an A&W root beer. With A&W, it's good to be thick-headed. What a dumbass. At number four for the most popular soda drinks in the world is Mountain Dew. Mm. Tennessee bottlers Barney and Alan Hartman developed Mountain Dew as a mixer in the 1940s. Soft drinks were regional in the 1930s, and the Hartmans had difficulty in Knoxville obtaining their preferred soda to mix with liquor, preferably whiskey, so the two men developed their own. Originally a 19th century generic term for whiskey, especially Highland Scotch whiskey, the name was trademarked for the soft drink in 1948. The Tip Corporation of Marion, Virginia bought the rights to Mountain Dew, revising the flavor and launching it in 1961. In 1964, PepsiCo purchased the Tip Corporation and thus acquired the rights to Mountain Dew. Here's the very first Mountain Dew TV commercial from 1966 that promises the drink will tickle your innards. Mountain Dew! Oh, beautiful Sal was a stone-hearted gal, refusing to bill or to coo. But Clem was right smart, he appealed to her heart with that gal getting good old Mountain Dew. Yahoo! Mountain Dew! Mountain Dew will tickle your innards, cause there's a bang in every bottle. At the county turkey shoot, cause Luke weren't worth a hoot. He was hopeless till he finally took the cue. Yahoo! Mountain Dew! Now he shoots off the cup. It's more than enough after nipping at that good old Mountain Dew. Sure is shooting. There's a bang in every bottle of our delicious soft drink, Mountain Dew. It'll tickle your innards. And at number three of the best sodas in the entire world is Sprite. The winner of the Lemon Lime Soda War, Sprite is the go-to citrus beverage for most people. It's a colorless, caffeine-free, lemon-lime flavored soft drink created by the Coca-Cola Company. It was first developed in West Germany in 1959 and was introduced in the United States as a competitor to 7-Up. Over the years, Sprite has had 17 variations worldwide, including Sprite Zero, Sprite Remix, Blast, Ice, Duo, Super Lemon, Lemon Lime Herb, Recharge, 3G, Cranberry, Six Mix, and Sprite Tropical. Sprite can also help relieve stomach pains such as those caused by gassy buildup. <laughs> Carbonated beverages such as Sprite can cause you to burp and expel some of the gas, thus relieving you of your stomach pain. 
two for the most popular soda pops in the universe is the great and grand Dr. Pepper. One of my personal favorites. The U.S. Patent Office recognizes December 1st, 1885 as the first time Dr. Pepper was served. It was introduced nationally in the United States at the 1904 Louisiana Purchase Exposition as a new kind of soda pop made with 23 flavors. Its introduction in 1885 preceded the introduction of Coca-Cola by one year. It was formulated by Brooklyn-born pharmacist Charles Alderton in Morrison's Old Corner Drugstore in Waco, Texas. To test his new drink, he first offered it to store owner Wade Morrison, who also found it to his liking. Alderton gave the formula to Morrison, who named it Dr. Pepper. As with Coca-Cola, the formula for Dr. Pepper is a trade secret, and allegedly the recipe is kept as two halves in safe deposit boxes in two separate Dallas banks. A persistent rumor since the 1930s is that the drink contains prune juice, but the official Dr. Pepper frequently asked questions refutes this claim. A woman by the name of Donna Lauren was the one and only Dr. Pepper girl from 1963 to 68. She was signed to a long-term contract with the soft drink company to sing all television and radio commercials, do all magazine and billboard advertising, representing them in every capacity, sometimes sharing the spotlight with American Bandstand's Dick Clark. Here she is in this vintage Dr. Pepper TV commercial from 1964. Hi, I'm Donna Lauren. Many words can describe Dr. Pepper. Here's how our caveman friends do it. Now that you all have a bottle of Dr. Pepper, I want you to take a taste and then give me your reaction in one word. Remember now, one word. Flavor. Lift. Light. Lively. Zonk. The soft drink with zonk? Well, that's one way to praise Dr. Pepper. Here's mine. Good times begin with Dr. Pepper. Distinctively different, Dr. Pepper. Not a cola or a root beer, a light and lively taste that you cheer. The lift is great, the flavor fine, it's Dr. Pepper time. And who could forget this scene from Forrest Gump when Forrest meets President Kennedy at the White House? I must have drank me about 15 Dr. Peppers. Congratulations. How do you feel? I gotta pay. <laughs> I believe he said he had to go pee. And here it is. The number one spot. The big kahuna. The top place in the universe. The best soda in the galaxy. is Coca-Cola. Looks like we made it. Big surprise. The winner and champion still. Originally intended as a medicine, it was invented in the late 19th century by John Pemberton and was bought out by businessman Asia Griggs Candler, whose marketing tactics led Coca-Cola to its dominance of the world soft drink market throughout the 20th century. The drink's name refers to two of its original ingredients, which were cola nuts, the source of caffeine, and coca leaves. 
The current formula of Coca-Cola remains a trade secret, although a variety of reported recipes and experimental recreations have been published. The Coca-Cola company produces concentrate, which is then sold to licensed Coca-Cola bottlers throughout the world. The bottlers, who hold exclusive territory contracts with the company, produce the finished product in cans and bottles from the concentrate in combination with filtered water and sweeteners. The bottlers then sell, distribute, and merchandise Coca-Cola to retail stores, restaurants, and vending machines throughout the world. Here's a vintage Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola TV ad from the early 1950s. There are times every day as you work or you play when a pause would be welcome to you. And it's then that you find the bright thought in your mind that only a Coke will do. 50 million times a day at home, at work, or on the way. There's nothing like a Coca-Cola, nothing like a Coke. Nothing. And that's our look at the top 10 sodas in the world, according to a poll of over 185,000 people. From Pepsi at number 10 all the way to the top spot at number 1, the original Coca-Cola is the reigning champion. This is Our American Stories. I'm Jesse Edwards. Our American Stories, where we love to tell great stories about music, sports, love, death, business, anything. One of our favorite subjects is generosity and the generous things Americans do for each other and the world. Which brings us to our sweet charity series with our partners, the Philanthropy Roundtable, the nation's leader in fostering excellence in generosity, protecting philanthropic freedom, and assisting givers in achieving their goals. And the host of the series is none other than Carl Zinsmeister, their head of publications, and a modern renaissance man. He's written 11 books, but of course, the one we know him best by is the book called The Almanac of American Philanthropy. And here's a story from that great collection. Take it away, Carl. When I was in college in the late 1970s and early 80s, I passed through New York City a lot. And at that time, Central Park was a great place to go and get mugged. Not such a great place for relaxing, enjoying nature, playing sports, or refreshing your spirits. The gardens were overgrown and disorderly, the buildings and paths were decayed, the fountains weren't working, much of the grass had died and blown away. Graffiti and other vandalization was everywhere, and vagrants and gangs dominated many corners of the park. When you live jammed into a few square miles, packed with tall buildings and millions of other people, public parks are important for recharging your personal batteries. But the decrepit state of many city parks in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, not only in New York, but in many places across the country, made it hard for citizens to enjoy the outdoors. Crummy parks were one more push that led people to abandon cities and move out to suburbs. Despite long commutes, they could at least enjoy some leafy green out there. For those of you too young to imagine Central Park as a wasteland, here's a little reminder from New Yorker Doug Blonsky that I'm not exaggerating about how bad things had gotten. I'll never forget getting off the bus at, you know, 90th and 5th and walking down the bridal trail and seeing more rats than people. And then walking down to the Great Lawn, which was 
referred to as the Great Dust Bowl. And going by Turtle Pond up to the castle, and Turtle Pond was filled with dead fish, and it literally stunk. And then the castle just covered with graffiti, wrapped in razor wire, and completely closed off to the public. It was amazing. In 1976, Richard Gilder, the founder of a brokerage firm and a leading philanthropist in New York City, decided dramatic change was needed and that he should step up to help create it. He offered to pay for a study on how to rescue Central Park. He and other philanthropists he recruited put up the first gifts in what became millions of dollars of private donations for park restoration. But there was a catch, a huge, vital catch. The donors insisted that the city also hand over the car keys. They weren't going to just ladle lots more money into the dysfunctional government bureaucracy that had let the park fall apart in the first place. Their central insight was that what the park was really missing wasn't money, but sensible, hard-headed management. They established a nonprofit Central Park Conservancy, which was free of the crazy union rules and city budget shenanigans that had gotten the park into such trouble. And they convinced the city to let this conservancy take over real, long-term management responsibility for restoring the park and then operating it on a daily basis. With this ability to make sure resources were spent effectively, this private charitable operating organization quickly engineered an impressive string of successes. Order and beauty were returned to the park. 90% of the crimes taking place when the conservancy started up were eliminated. Impressive plantings and rebuildings commenced. Soon, the number of annual visitors to the park began to soar, from 12 million in the early 1980s to more than 40 million today. These clear triumphs allowed the Central Park Conservancy to raise more than $700 million in donations over the next four decades from grateful, enthusiastic philanthropists. As soon as the effectiveness of this new model for creating and operating parks became obvious to the public, charitable park conservancies began to spread like wildfire. Citizens began to get involved in reviving public parks all across the country. Today, half of all major cities rely on private conservancies to manage and fund crucial parks. And the result is that we are now in a golden age of urban greenways. There are newly improved or created jewels everywhere you look. Piedmont Park in Atlanta, Shelby Farms in Memphis, the Olmstead Parks in Louisville, Buffalo Bayou in Houston, St. Louis's Forest Park, the restoration of our National Mall in D.C., projects in Pittsburgh, Buffalo, and other parts of New York City, all of these modeled directly on the charitable rescue of Central Park. And hundreds of exciting new urban parks are being created using the private conservancy management model. A $350 million oasis is springing up in Tulsa with money from philanthropist George Kaiser. Discovery Green has been carved into central Houston thanks to generous givers. Private donors powered the amazingly popular High Line Park in lower Manhattan, Chicago's similar 606 Trail, and other trail parks in Atlanta and elsewhere. Clyde Warren Park in Dallas is another brand new donor-driven haven that was cleverly created right in the heart of the Arts District by roofing over a below-grade expressway and then installing a series of gardens, lawns, promenades, fountains, and dog and kid zones. This new park unites the two sides of the Arts District that had been cut in half by the highway and thus has dramatically enlivened downtown Dallas. 
I was in the park last week and was astonished to see how heavily it is being used by everybody. Teens, elderly couples, pet owners, newspaper readers, badminton teams, wine sippers, moms doing yoga, musicians on outdoor stages, chess players, toddlers running through sprinklers, you name it. It was as jammed with revelers as I've ever seen Bryant Park in New York, Love Park in Philadelphia, or other famously popular outdoor sites. Now that it's open, I can't imagine downtown Dallas without it. None of this would have happened without substantial charitable donations, and even more important, an insistence on private management that gets around the municipal featherbedding and misrule that caused so many public parks to fall into decline a generation ago. Thanks to donors, you are living in the golden age of urban parks. So get out and enjoy one. And great job as always, Carl, and as always, the folks at the Philanthropy Roundtable doing great work, protecting philanthropic freedom and assisting givers in achieving their goals. This is Our American Stories. our American stories. And every once in a while, we poke in on some part of the media and share it with you. By the way, we love Shark Tank. You hear regular segments from Shark Tanks. They're great stories. People pitching their products, pitching their lives to high net worth people and fantastic businessmen who may or may not invest in those enterprises for a stake of the business. Terrific show. We love Judge Judy. And sometimes we bring you an episode of Judge Judy. You have busy lives. And so we do it for you. And This Is Life with Lisa Ling wrapped up their third season. It's on CNN. They wrapped up their third season of programming where the award-winning journalist goes on what CNN calls a, quote, gritty, breathtaking journey to the far corners of America. If you listen to our This Is Life with Lisa Ling segments, you heard Ling's reporting where she managed to sympathize with literally the devil during her Satanist Next Door episode and then with a notorious outlaw outlaw motorcycle gang, the Mongols. But then she had an outstanding Fatherless Towns episode where she documents a special dance for daughters and their fathers who are incarcerated. The dance is held by the prison to help develop daddy-daughter relationships. Today we are happily featuring another great episode called Silicon Savants. Here's host Lisa Ling giving us a quick look into this week's episode. This is Jackson. I don't have like any clean shirts. I'm pissed about it. He's 19 years old and lives in this tiny room with Simon, who's 21. We woke up to tons of bugs that people had found. I'll fix it. And Stefan, also 21. Today is a big day for them. They hope to raise $1 million. 
Around here, that's not so far-fetched. So I'm coding right now. Yeah, you are. Oh, okay. Abe is 19, and he already created a million-dollar company. That's the new gold rush. Silicon Valley is teeming with investor money. Brilliant young people from all over the country are flocking here, hoping to become the next Mark Zuckerberg or Steve Jobs. Do you have any regrets about not even having a high school diploma? None, no. These young savants are charting the future. So can we just see you control this car with your mind? Whoa, whoa. And changing the world. What happened in San Francisco in 2015 is going to be the subject of history books. Let's follow Lisa through the San Francisco Bay Area of Berkeley and Silicon Valley, California, and find out what America's young and brilliant minds are up to these days. If you're wondering what college students are up to these days, you don't have to look much further than a football stadium on an October weekend. It's 8 p.m. on a Friday night, and hundreds and hundreds of kids have converged here on the campus of UC Berkeley for a huge event. But don't be fooled. These kids aren't here to tailgate and watch the game. They're here to hack. Hi, everyone. How many of you are beginner hackers? This is your first hackathon. This is the CalHacks Hackathon. More than 2,000 collegiates from all across the country will spend the next 36 hours inside this football stadium, racing to engineer cutting-edge computer-based projects from scratch. I just love to give a huge shout-out to all our corporate sponsors who made this hackathon possible. And with that, James Whitaker from Microsoft. Thank you. Don't clap until you hear what I have to say because I have bad news for you all. For every smart person standing here listening to this right now, there's a hundred thousand other smart people who are just as good as you. What's going to make you stand out? That is creativity. And now I'm getting warm. (laughs) Software is the opposable thumb for the human mind. Let's go back to Lisa and learn more about this hackathon. It quickly becomes clear to me that hackathons are gold mines for Silicon Valley recruiters. So uh, we're Uber. If you build something sick and you show it to us, we give you a job. Sponsor companies give participants access to their most up-to-date technologies. And hackers who choose to use them can win serious prizes. The best API usage is a lunch with a VC. So if you're an entrepreneur, you want to win that. A representative from Microsoft tells me they find more desirable talent here than among computer science grads. Is it possible that you could actually hire people from here? Most definitely. I'd say we've recruited quite a few folks from hackathons. A lot of what university students learn now is not necessarily something that companies are hiring for. So literally, you can learn something six months ago, and that's no longer fresh by the time that you graduate. The hackathon is really a way for, you know, like, for kids to stay fresh because they're working on like new next-generation technology. They're working on like emerging products. They're building the next robot. Let's meet one of these hackers. James flew here all the way from New Jersey. This will be his 22nd hackathon. Yeah, I can't find you. If they let him through the door. 
What university do you go to? Uh, I'm from a high school. Huh? You're from no, a high school, school student. We were told it's like no high school students allowed. Do you mind waiting at the sign right there? Yeah, of course. At 17 years old, James is the quintessential overachiever. Eagle Scout, honor student, varsity debate team, model congress. Yeah, it happens all the time. No, it's, no they, uh, they couldn't find my registration, but the same thing happened last year, so. Please wait right here. He's already won prizes at two hackathons. And even though he's still too young to vote, he did software development for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. What's your name? James. Oh, James, come over here. Sure. Fortunately, James's trip to California wasn't for nothing. This is the only exception, okay? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not going to be a high school student uh, next year. All right, thanks so much. He's in. When James first discovered hackathons, he found a world full of people like himself. How's it going? Is this table being used, this area? No? All right, thanks so much. The stereotype is we stay at home and we sit in our basements and drink soda and eat pizza. Sorry, James. Nice to meet you. You know, that whole mentality changes when you come to an event like this. The chance that you're going to become friends with people here is extremely high. Just put a book on the seat. Between events, James keeps in touch with the hackathon community online. That's how he found two teammates for this weekend's event. You know, that's the great thing about hackathons is you never tend to work with the same team. I have met so many great people from all over the United States, people that I do think will be the next Mark Zuckerberg and the next, you know, Bill Gates. You get to meet all those people here and now. Let's find out what James and his two teammates are going to create at the hackathon. It's now 11 p.m., and the hackers are getting down to business. We want to be able to vote from this. After a few hours, I check in with James and his teammates to see how it's going. So do you know what you're making yet? We've taken a look at how people use uh, mobile phones in African countries, Middle East. And our idea is, what if we can use text messaging for submitting votes for elections in those countries? I mean, that's an incredibly ambitious project that you're trying to achieve. When I was your age, I was partying and <laughs> going to raves and all that. Is this fun? It's, there is nothing like it. Hackathons are kind of like a party for me in that you get so much out of it and you have so much fun. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. Can I catch up with you guys tomorrow? Yeah. Of course. Let's leave Berkeley and take a quick drive over to Silicon Valley and meet two guys preparing to pitch their startup to a room full of wealthy venture capitalists. Let's listen in as Jackson tells his barber about himself and his startup called WealthCoin which ties into the online currency called Bitcoin. So you're from the area, Jackson? Or? Actually from Oklahoma City originally. I moved out here about a year and a half ago, though. I'm a designer, co-founder startup with that guy. So what kind of startup do you guys have there? You ever heard of Bitcoin before? No, I haven't. It's this like crazy online currency. And what makes it cool is that no one owns it. It's like decentralized, which means there's no like government or bank that kind of backs it. So our startup lets anyone invest in like stocks and bonds and portfolios with Bitcoin. That's pretty cool, a uniformed uh, currency throughout the world there. Exactly. It's like it brings out like the happy anarchist in everyone, you know? (laughs) Just the right amount. We let people make more money. It's dope. We let people make more money. It's dope, Jackson said. These days in the Bay Area, startup companies are a dime a dozen. In 2014, U.S. venture capitalists spent $48.3 billion investing in these innovative technology startups. 
They're pouring record-breaking sums into startups hoping to strike gold by backing the next Facebook, Snapchat, or Uber. When we come back, more with Lisa Ling. This is life. Silicon Savants. And that's what we do here in Our American Stories. Periodically, we take a dip into what's happening on TV, in the culture. And Lisa Ling's This This Is Life on CNN is one of the more interesting shows out there. And it's on at odd times, so we track it so you don't have to. More on Silicon Savants, Silicon Valley, and young people who it looks like may never go to college. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with this modern-day San Francisco gold rush, Silicon Savants. It's a story Lisa Ling told on This Is Life on CNN, and I think uh, the next hackathon, I want to send one of our one of our team members out there, because I think what's missing here is just the sense of play. Lisa's treating this like a straight reporting story, and my goodness, these kids are a blast, and they're just doing Wild things with lives. You know, there was a day, folks, and we talk about this a lot on this show, when people didn't go to college to do great engineering and innovative feats. You know, Thomas Edison wasn't going to college. Alexander Graham Bell, they were inventing. They were tinkering. The guys who got us to air, to space, to flight, they were the Wright brothers. They were bicycle shop owners, and they were tinkerers on the side. And now everybody's studying and everybody's getting advanced degrees and certifications. As we heard, as we heard from a Microsoft executive, we don't want to hire from the colleges because they're not doing, those kids aren't doing the coolest, newest stuff. It's these kids who are just going to the hackathon. Well, that's a recruiting source for us. So back to the story. Here's Lisa Ling talking about this gold rush and Jackson's attempt to hit pay dirt with his two college dropout team members. Again, here's Lisa Ling. Jackson's team has already secured $375,000 in commitments from venture capitalists. Their goal is to raise a million to launch their startup. But for now, they're sharing a 15 by 20 foot room that reminds me a lot of a college dorm. Wow, this space is tiny. It's cozy. So who gets the mattress? Uh, we had like a long conversation, it got deep, and then I got shafted with a mattress. <laughs> shafted with a mattress. Where do these young folks come from? Here's Jackson telling us about his childhood. We will also be hearing a home video interview of him as a 13-year-old. You're only 19 years old, so technically you still are a kid, but what were you like when you were a little kid? <laughs> <laughs> um, I really didn't think the same way as other kids and i have always kind of had my own version of reality how old are you i'm 13 you're 13 and when did you get started with like blogging and stuff i guess november of last year i started the blog 
And then I started my podcast in March. Did you know anything about development or design or? I do freelance graphic and web design. I've been doing that for about a year now. When I was 12, I started a video podcast and I started uh, doing some freelance web design for local small businesses around Oklahoma City. And uh, that just kind of escalated to a, a love for all things kind of tech and design related. Wow. So you're going to start a business now? Oh, yeah. I have a business. Are you making money? Yes. Yes. What kind of student were you? Uh, terrible. I failed almost all of my classes. What? Yeah. Why is that? I, I wouldn't do homework is what it was. I would leave school, I would go home, and I would work on freelance web design for clients. How did your parents feel about this? Uh, <laughs> terrible for the longest time. I mean, what, what are you going to do when your kid's like failing out of school, basically, consistently every year? My college counselor called my mom and dad in together, and she said, you know, I think your son is on drugs. <laughs> Jackson's mom gave him a choice, school or work but not both. But when I was actually faced with the opportunity, hey, choose one, but just focus on one thing, then I immediately took a step back and said, wow, I could be doing this all the time. So after that, I dropped out. And do you have any regrets about not even having a high school diploma? Not even, no. Our current high school system isn't set up in a way that encourages students to succeed. It's set up in a way that encourages students to all meet the same standards. What you're saying is very controversial, you know that. I understand that, but it's something that everyone's going to realize sooner or later. By the way, there's Lisa Ling editorializing. I think half of America thinks what this young man is saying is not controversial at all, and that schools breed and teach conformity, and we're pretty much put together for the 20th century industrial era, and it's making very little sense as it relates to the 21st century information age. Let's head back to the hackathon, though, and see how things are going with the Eagle Scout high schooler James and his team who are attempting to create a program for third world nations that will allow citizens to vote from their phones. So it's 11.30 p.m. Saturday night. How is everything going? We're making pretty good progress. We're trying to get authentication working so that we can make sure that, you know, one person equals one vote. They don't submit votes on multiple phones. I noticed you lost a partner here. <laughs> yes. Vivek yeah. is gone. Is he, uh, is he sleeping? lost him to the horrors of being awake for 30 hours straight, but he's, he's asleep somewhere. The last time I was here, it was 2 a.m. Uh, <laughs> 2 a.m. this morning. morning. So did you sleep then since we saw you last? So I went to sleep shortly after that. I took a nap for 30 minutes this afternoon at some point. You've only slept 30 minutes? Yeah. No, come on. Yeah, I slept in the stairwell. Oh, my God. Paula. (laughs) It, It was fine. I generally don't sleep during hackathons. And this is the thing, folks. Millennials are oftentimes seen as lazy and entitled which to a degree can be true, but never ever label any generation because, well, generations have been doing that to the one that follows them forever. But what is also true is that what is often labeled as lazy is just plain boredom. One of the alternatives to the traditional college education is a controversial new learning institution in downtown San Francisco. This is Make School, a radical alternative to college. It's a two-year program with 33 students, and they are really, really smart. In fact, some of the students here have turned down places like MIT and Harvard to be here. So who in Silicon Valley would create an institution like this? A 23-year-old college dropout, of course. 
We're taking students who have already discovered they're very passionate about building apps, and we are giving them a shortened, focused university experience that'll let them pursue a career as a software developer or a startup founder. Ashu Desai co-founded MakeSchool. The program differs from traditional school in one major way. It's a startup itself funded by venture capitalists. And they only invest because they hope to see a return. How does Make School work? Do students pay tuition? Students won't pay upfront tuition. They'll pay tuition through their earnings. By aligning our incentives directly with students, we're only making money if the students are having good outcomes. That's brilliant. It's like how it's like Hollywood actors and athletes. They have agents, and then the agent, well, they invest in the athlete, they invest in the artist, they get them coaches, and if that all works out, they get 10%. This is brilliant. Let's meet a Make School student, 19-year-old Ebenezer. Here's his background. So I grew up in a little village in Ethiopia. My mom had the only radio. So when I was born, my mom let me take apart the radio. And as I grew up, I took apart the TV. Um, so anything I could get my hands on. So it was always interesting to me how things worked. Ebenezer's family moved to the States when he was 10, and he discovered computers. My dad told me to get a job the summer of eighth grade. So I went to the library, grabbed a few books on programming, and thought I could make a living off this. And I did some gigs for my neighbor, made some websites, made my first $100 off that. And that first $100 has, you know, gotten me here. At age 14, Ebenezer launched his first startup. Before long, he had 15 employees and was pulling in serious profits. Can I ask about how much money you were making while you were in high school? My company was worth almost a million dollars. Before you sold it? Yeah. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Silicon Savants. Lisa Ling's This Is Life. We cover these kinds of stories because we know you miss them. We don't. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories in our final segment of Lisa Ling's Silicon Savants, a fascinating hour on CNN. I wish it had been just a little lighter. These kids are terrific, and they're pushing boundaries, pushing an envelope that I think a lot of parents are wondering about, frankly, and that is that in this digital age, when things are moving so fast, our kids are just really bored in school, more bored than ever before. 
hey, look, when we were in school, there wasn't Facebook. There wasn't this speed. When we came home, there wasn't this speed of technology. So things moved and plodded along, and so did our lives. It was, I think, an easier time to not be bored. But today, all the more reason to maybe think about or rethink how we do schools, how we do everything. In the last segment, we had heard from a make school student, 19-year-old Ebenezer. And by the way, his background, it was just fascinating listening to this young man. Why did this incredibly intelligent young guy bypass college in favor of this place called Make School? After high school, Ebenezer planned to study computer science and business at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. Thank you. But then he discovered Make School, and his plans changed overnight. Was there always an expectation that you would go to university? Of course. My parents and all my friends thought, hey, this guy's crazy. But I think times are changing. We're in the digital era right now, and that's not going to change. It's only going to get bigger and bigger. It's so true, and Make School is bottom-up, and so much education is top-down. And I was just reading Lincoln's Greatest Case. It's about Abraham Lincoln's great case. He was representing the railroads against the steamboat industry. And it turns out, I'm, I'm reading through the book, and it turns out Lincoln never went to law school. Back then, you didn't need somebody to certify that you were a qualified lawyer or not through a collegiate or accreditation process. He apprenticed for years, he took the bar, and he became one of the greatest lawyers in the history of America. That's how we used to do things. No, no law school debt. No three years, guys with patches on their sleeves telling you how to think about, well, this issue or that issue as it relates to the Constitution. Go work in a law office, work for a while, then take a bar, and then open up your own firm or go work for another firm. And I think that's what you're hearing from someone like Ebenezer. He's looking at New Jersey Institute of Technology. It's a private school. It's probably $50,000 a year. He's being taught by people who haven't been in the field for 20 years. And he's thinking, what am I paying for? Why am I going into debt? And in comes make school. And they say, hey, it's free. And if it works out for you, we want 5%. Oh, my goodness. They're going to be paying 10 or 15% to pay off their darn college loans. This is fascinating stuff, and Lisa Ling, I believe, and Greg, we'll talk about this at the end, I think she stumbled on something. I don't think she was looking for this, and actually it sounds like she's a little surprised and possibly upset at these new makeshift ways of thinking about school. In just two weeks since starting Make School, Ebenezer has made huge strides in developing a phone app. But are these new learning institutions more useful than a college education? Lisa Ling poses that question to the founder of Make School, Ashu Dusay. Ashu says that college curriculums focus too much on theory without giving the students the practical skills they need to succeed outside academia. The trend that you can really watch is the collegiate hackathon scene, where you'll have 1,000 students giving up their weekends, giving up their sleep, because they want to learn about new technologies. It feels very broken that they have to do this on the weekend. For us at May School, we're saying, hey, here's two years of a hackathon. Build cool things. The time has come for Jackson and his team to pitch their WealthCoin app idea to some 300-plus of the world's wealthiest venture capitalists. 20 other startups will also be there to pitch their company. Lisa Ling has a question for one of the wealthy investors, Pierre Wolf. Do you have concerns about 
you know, investing such huge amounts of capital in someone, well, in, in, in people who had little experience. Look, were we nervous about investing in Mark Zuckerberg? No, that's the nature of what we do here. The youth are the ones taking chances and some of the big things are happening with them. You gotta bet on them because you don't know who's that next spark who's just gonna catch that fire. Listen to Lisa, like she's there, like, do you know what you're doing? And, and, and this just, it's a mindset. And, and meanwhile, Pierre Wolf's going, calm down. Young minds have done remarkable things. They're not little snowflakes. You know, when we did, when we were looking at John Adams' life, and we're getting ready for John Adams' life, he was sent off at the age of 12 or 13 by his parents to go to Europe on a boat. And these weren't cruise liners, alone. Because that's how we used to treat young people. Not like snowflakes. You want to go to Europe? Here, go. Live. Grow up. Jackson and his team's WealthCoin app pitch is a success. They net interest from the man who owns the largest Bitcoin mining farm in the United States. Now let's head back to the Berkeley Hackathon and listen in as James, the high school Eagle Scout from New Jersey, receives a grilling as he has his voting app judged. So show me about your hack today. Do you have a phone on you? Sure. You text this number and it asks you to tell Hello. Hey, please enter your first name. It's going to present you with a list of the candidates that you can vote for. So I voted for an illegal candidate. I voted for three and you had one through two and you accepted my vote. I'm going to try voting again, see what happens. Yeah. So obviously there was no uh, vote for when you voted for number three. And uh, let's try and... I'm going to try voting a third time. Okay, so I voted for three and then two and then one, and it said thank you all the times. Yeah, no, this is you know still a work in progress. So how are you handling the external visibility of all of this? Do you think building a voting system based on Facebook is the right solution? If you look at the Bitcoin system... I'm not talking about money, I'm talking about votes. The main problem is buying votes, especially common in Central America. That's, that's how most of the voter fraud is done. So any other questions? That's it. All right, thanks so much. Good to see you. Good job. I got grilled. He really knew what he was talking about. He sure did get grilled. And by the way, that's good. That's how you learn in the end. And the sooner you can drill this down to young people, the better, folks. We all know that. Here's Ling with one hackathon team whose hack impressed the judges, even Ling herself. These kids are thinking big. The problem that we're tackling is the European migrant crisis. This app connects Syrian refugees to volunteers who can provide them with food, water, and housing. So you thought of this idea here at the hackathon, but what are you going to do with it after? Because this app could really help people. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, really, do you have any idea where you could take this? Yeah, honestly, as college students, right, we have to worry about school and stuff. But it's just kind of crazy because this could actually be so useful right now. Yeah. You guys just created this in 36 hours, and then you're going to go back to school on Monday, right? Yeah, yeah. That's the life of a hackathon. I can't believe that in just a couple of hours, these kids will go back to school and their amazing ideas will just disappear. Seriously? And you built this? It's really got me wondering, are they wasting creative potential? Would the world benefit more if these young people were developing projects instead of sitting in college classrooms? It's brilliant, guys. And that's a good question. And I think it probably took Lisa Ling longer than most of us to turn around and come to that conclusion. We're going to end this hour with parting thoughts from Lisa Ling. This generation of millennials has been called lazy and entitled, but the kids I met are anything but. 
They're really creating extraordinary things and it makes me excited about the future. I also want to send my daughter to a coding class. I mean, she's only two, but why not start her early? And why not? Why not? Greg, you watched this segment. Uh, talk a little about the, the, the young people in this hackathon. What did it look like? Where did it happen? And, and what, what was the mass turnout for something like this? And how often does this happen around the country? Well, it happens a lot. But I just want to talk really quickly about what she just said about starting her kid at two. That is the public school mentality. It is, let me get my kid, let me push my kid into being smarter instead of just sitting back and let them be self starters themselves like that's what the guy said i hire people not who went to college but the the ones who just sat at home and were self-motivated ling is still having the public school mentality of oh if i just throw them in it's this idea that if i don't get them in kindergarten early enough they're not going to get into the right college right right and that's what we're told and that's what we're tricked into and just say instead instead of just sitting back and saying when my kid has the spark then I'm going to come alongside them instead of trying to make the spark happen, which is not going to happen. It's just going to make them hate learning. Yeah, and hate you. Yeah. I mean, ultimately. And, and again, all these great inventors, and this is why we love doing Benjamin Franklin and listening to Walter Isaacson, and we're going to do a great hour on Franklin and reading his book. My goodness. The parents weren't saying, now, now Benjamin, get that kite out there and go discover electricity. It's just not how it happened. No. He was a curious guy about a lot of things. And if you can encourage curiosity in your kids and then leave them alone, right. it might go a long way. And uh, let's just keep looking out for Lisa Ling. There's hope for her. But in the end, she's always that mindset of top-down, of how, how can we say it best, the hierarchical structures and thinking this is best for our kids. And by the way, best for how we live our day-to-day lives uh, is just, uh, she's a work in progress, Lisa. And this is our American stories. This is what we love to talk about, folks. And this hackathon, the next time we give a report from a hackathon, we're going to be at the hackathon. And we may even follow some of these young people's lives for a while. Because it's easy to do here on Our American Stories. It's a phone. It's a cell phone. No cameras necessary. And thanks for joining us as always. We appreciate you listening. Without you, there is no show. Without you, there is no Our American Stories. Send your stories. We'll put them on the air. 